So everybody just started buying heroin because it's literally the same thing. So ladies were old ladies and men were like buying heroin, you know, never in their lives would they imagine that they would become an intravenous drug user. But there they were, like in this terrible situation. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Come on, sissy that pod, let's get sickening! Are you a fan of the Emmy award-winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, Sissy That Pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right, whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All-Stars, Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play. Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of F&I Rap Chat. So as I mentioned on the last episode, uh, we are doing uh, kind of a collaboration with uh, the IFI DocFest. So we are interviewing um, directors over the next week or so and we'll be getting those over the next getting them out uh, over the next while so definitely go and check out the IFI DocFest on the IFI website check out all the films there's an amazing lineup of films uh, running all this week um, and some some filmmakers that we've had on before uh, like Ross Colleen and his uh, his newest documentary about uh, Damien Dempsey uh, Live Your Life Today is a a beautiful beautiful film another one is uh, Breaking Out by Michael McCormick Um, another amazing uh, amazingly beautiful music documentary and uh, the one we're talking about today uh, Mary Sue Connolly an amazing filmmaker and an amazing story about her film um, Overdosed which she filmed about the opioid epidemic in West Virginia, in America. It's a it's a really stunning film, um, and t- t- to get to chat to her today about how she made it just on her on her own, um, uh, with her her three year old daughter uh, in the background, um, being dragged around uh, and uh, doing all these making this film on her own. Basically, it's just uh, very very inspiring. Um, so that is in. DIFI on Wednesday uh, at six. Um, so anyone who can go along see it in Dublin, uh, there will be a Q and A. Um, but it also is available on the IFA IFI player, um, and I'd really encourage you to go and see that. So let's go to Mary Sue. So we're in the studio here with Mary Sue. Thank you so much. You've um, taken a long journey to get here. You're you're Irish, but you live in America. Well, I I kind of split my time between County Waterford, actually, and, okay. um, and New York. So back and forth, you know, every six months or something like that. Right. Yeah, OK. I came up from Waterford today. And thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so, so you grew up here. How did you end up in America? Um, I left Ireland when I was really young, like I think I was just 19 or something. And um, I just had this sense of invincibility that I could do anything. I never planned on staying away. It was li- literally for the summer. And then... Um, I just then I it became oh I'll take a year off college and go back next year and then I just kind of never moved back to Ireland right you know yeah and it wasn't like you weren't going over there to go 
Hollywood or go do the media thing or no it wasn't a career move right, it was more okay. just curiosity like yeah, it was yeah. just like I have to just see what else is in the world you know but then I did start working it's funny my first job was like a receptionist at a post-production company so I did actually start working and I always wanted to work in film but I, I studied painting before I left Ireland so it was in fine arts you okay. know but um, I did always want to work in film I don't know in, in the back of my mind I don't know how you know how much of an effort I actually put into it, but it, I did end up working in production and in New York and, and commercials. Then after that, after the post-production job, I started working in commercials and I became a producer and it was all television stuff. Yeah. Right. So, and, and then I started editing. That was like most of my career has been editing actually. Yeah. Um, and then I did my little films on the side, but like all my money came from editing. Okay. Yeah. That was your main And documentary mostly uh, no I actually I love documentary which is why I like to do as an art form myself but no my editing jobs were all um, news oddly news and short form television you know so I worked at CNN I worked at CBS for like 10 years wow, wow. <laughs> can't believe I was there for 10 years yeah um so another thing that I didn't anticipate, you know, yeah, it was yeah. like the six months turned into like a lifetime and the the CBS job turned into 10 years, which was crazy. But um, and that was mostly newsroom stuff as well, like last minute. Some of it was entertainment news, but mm. very, very last minute. Like you go into the edit room, you don't know what's happening until the day you get there. And depending on what the news of the day is, and then you have to like just crash it out like and, and do it and edit, you know, in a few hours. It's really stressful. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Not that many hard like I'd say a lot of people burn out very quickly on that yeah I mean some you know I suppose there's ways you can kind of get used to it most of the editors were men as well they seem to be able, more laid back and right. you know able to handle the pressure I think more than the girls I'm not sure but yeah. um, uh, n yeah it's not for everybody that kind of last minute you know yeah. hustle it was really uh, yeah it, I burned out <laughs> right yeah yeah and is there scope for creativity or is it very much there definitely is with some people that you're working with. It really depends. You right. know, uh, funnily enough, at CNN, I, I did some of their longer segments, which would be like, you know, five minutes is a long segment for CNN. You right. know, some of their like like feature pieces or, you know, um, sometimes even more than that. And, and that was fun because then you would like have a few days to work on it and you would get to have creative input. And, you know, I was a pr producer editor at CNN. So, you know, you have to make uh, decisions in the in the edit room as to, you know, what's going to uh, look better, what content, what better, what content to use and everything. So, um, yeah, there were. It really depends. You know, it's some people that you work with just want you to like, this is the shot I want and I know exactly what I want and I don't want to talk to you about it. <laughs> you know, it really, really depends on yeah. the executives or the producers of that segment, you know, how they want to work with you. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And then to that, do you think that kind of informed you as in a and your filmmaking style at all? Uh, I, you know, my friends were worried that it took me away from because I was kind of an experimental filmmaker. Right, right, okay. <laughs> so um, it kind of made me rethink the format completely, actually. Yeah. You know, at some of these shows, there was absolutely no time for some for a pause or a, um, you know, if somebody had a, a pause in their speech or the dialogue or anything. You cut all that out. It was really tight. It was like, you know, it's, it's either a three-minute segment or even sometimes one and a half or sometimes five. But like, there was no time to not get the point across. Right. So you become really conscious of things like that. So when you're actually a feature filmmaker or editor or documentarian, and, you know, you like those little gaps and those little spaces and little music beats. And, you know, so I had to, it was a challenge for me to go back to doing long-form editing after having to cut everything so tight you know, so um, 
But it did give me the technical skill to work really fast in the edit room. You know, right. I, I knew how to. And then I also had to mix music. I ended up mixing, doing all my sound mixing and everything. Um, so I definitely learned a lot as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that that would be very handy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're doing things on a budget. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you mentioned um, your expen- experimental work. What, what kind of work was that? Um, oh, I did a film like years ago when I was really young about Irish mythology, actually. And I use a lot of Super 8 mixing film and video together and... You know, I really like this grainy film thing <laughs> for a while. I still love Super 8 like because it's so like vague and poetic looking. Um, so that's what I was doing originally. And then I had these editing jobs on the side. And um, um, but then like I just then I started working too much to do my own stuff. You yeah. Know, um, until this project came along. And that's when, um, yeah, I just threw everything into this. I, I actually right. stopped working for other people and kind of gave it my all 100 percent. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. that, that's such an interesting point that you were able to take those skills and bring it into something mm-hmm. like this. It kind of reminds me a little bit. I, I write for soap sometimes. Mm. And, uh, oh. That makes you very lean. Like you have to, it's very tight and there's no room for um, like what you were saying, you know, the, the kind of the, the different kind of idiosyncrasies yeah. and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, like and then you bring that into your other writing and then you go, oh, maybe I can, I, here now I can be a bit more relaxed and that. So maybe with mm. with this film, you got to kind of use both worlds. It was kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's totally, yeah, it's interesting. You have to like find that balance then. But like I did have a challenge, like how much space do I leave between the dialogue? Because, <laughs> you know, and how much space to, for me it was a real challenge to do the, the composing the music went to you know because I was so used to doing these bang 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 news stories you know yeah. um, so I had to really slow down and try and be conscious to let it breathe you know yeah um, so yeah I, I've got to watch the screener so thanks very much for okay. sending it um, and we'll be encouraging people to go see it at the IFI this week okay. um, so yeah quite a personal journey to this one maybe just take mm-hmm. us back to um, yeah, yeah, it was. It was like I, I lost somebody to an accidental overdose. So that um, really just turned my life around. It was like just plummeted me into another world I never thought I would be in. <laughs> it was like a rebirthing, you know, but it was like not not in a good way. Right. Um, so, um, you know, so I left everything because I felt like I had to tell the story. It was so important. And it wasn't really a story about my personal story it was just because it's such a huge issue that's happening in the United States that it's kind of like America's dark little secret that they don't want the world to know about I really feel like that it's something that should be like all over the news all the time I mean it's last year we lost like something like almost 94,000 people to drug overdoses Um, and mostly young people you know and those are not even accounting for accidental drug overdoses where you like you'll have you'll crash your car because you're high or something like that you know so this is and there's so people speculate that it could be even double that number Um, and the reason it's so high is because the country is flooded with fentanyl which is a synthetic opioid that's put into pills it's put into cocaine it's put into heroin I mean it's literally in everything, methamphetamine. So if you were to just say, oh, my gosh, I'll, I'll buy a Xanax. I mean, sounds pretty casual. But a lot of people on the weekend would, you know, maybe, 
you know, especially if you're a teenager and you want to like, oh, we'll have a few Xanax mm. at this party. Um, but now there's like 15, 16 year olds dying. They buy buy them on Snapchat and they go to a party and like there's fentanyl in it. So they actually put synthetic opioids into these pills to make them look like they're Percocets or Xanax or, you know, oxycodones or whatever. And they'll actually be taking fentanyl. And this is happening all across the states, like everywhere. It started in... Uh, Appalachia was kind of the main place where I, I filmed, you know, in West Virginia. So that was, it hit that area first, mm. and then it just kind of spread out from there. But what happened was, like, um, the drug companies, they do a thing called pill dumping, where they just ship, you know, millions of pills into these small, impoverished areas of vulnerable people, because uh, they know there's a market there. You know, they know there's a market there for these drugs. And... Um, and that's what they did, you know. They actually did statistics to find out where, you know, which communities would respond better to to drug, you know, yeah. to being addicted to developing a habit. Yeah. Because they knew that's where they're going to make their money. Um, and that happened, um, in, specifically in West Virginia originally, and Appalachia, and Kentucky, Ohio. Um, and then it just quickly spread out, hit all the college campuses, and now it's like a nationwide problem. Um, so anyway, that, so that happened in my family, and then I felt like I just absolutely had to tell the story because nobody else was. Mm. You know, I started like in January 2017, and I was just like shocked that nobody else was telling I me. Mean, there was little bits here and there, like the New York Times once in a while would say something about it, but you know, nothing along the lines that it should have been. You know, especially if you live like in places like New York and California, like you don't know what's happening. You right. know, because those are kind of like in their own little bubbles in a certain way. So anyway, that's why I had to tell the story. Okay, yeah. Um, the Yeah, because watching it, you know, you are kind of used to seeing, you know, in, in a more urban setting or in more like the cities and that they would have drug problems. But yeah, it was so striking, you know, to see in these kind of very rural places in the Appalachian areas. Mm-hmm. Um like were you you're not, you weren't living in that area so you had to mm. what had like you had to figure it out when you got there and yeah kinda, yeah. yeah I mean the, I suppose the film was kind of like investigating what was going on because like I, I honestly didn't know originally like mm. you know until you go down there because I was saying you live in New York and you just don't know it's not in the news like yeah. it's kind of like not talked about you know there's also a stigma you know so people don't want to talk about it but anyway yeah so I had no clue until I went down there and then I was like oh my god this is like like being in a war zone you know um, and yeah it's a rural community so you don't really expect it like in Baltimore yeah okay <laughs> you know but you don't expect these beautiful bucolic looking you know rolling hills it kind of looks like Ireland yeah, you know parts yeah. of West Virginia and it's just gorgeous and lakes and rivers and and it's just blissful but then there's this really really dark side you know and the levels of addiction are just so high, like, and yeah, it's just shocking. It's really and then sad. The supports are not yeah, there either. Exactly, yeah. no support system, and because it's a rural area, then the hospitals are are far away from the towns, and you know, yeah, there's no, there's nothing there. I mean, there's more there now, but there was definitely nothing there when I started my film. Right. Yeah. So, have you seen a change at, since then? Yeah, I have. Like, there has been drug settlement money because there was a lot of right. lit- litigation with some of the drug companies. You know. They were paying, you know, millions back to communities were suing, you know. um, And so some of the drug settlement money did go back into addiction services in those communities, but not enough to make a difference because the addictions were just cascading and just 
you know, getting getting worse and worse every year. Like so, um, and now it's at an all time high. Like last year, the U.S. drug overdose rate was up thirty percent than the previous year, and in certain states it was up forty percent. So in West Virginia, it was forty percent more overdoses in twenty twenty than there was in twenty nineteen. So because of the pandemic, you know, people are isolated, people right. are relapsing, there's yeah. no services available, like no one wants to go to the hospital anyway, I suppose. So, you know, there's so many different things. The isolation is a huge factor. I mean, in San Francisco, there was two and a half times more deaths from fentanyl than there was from COVID in 2020. Whoa. So, yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah. talking about something that is like right, not, not heard of, yeah. like not talked about, not reported, yeah. you know, so. And you definitely, like, I mean... You got such a feeling that these people are completely forgotten or they're not, you know. Mm. I mean, we we only we we get quite a lot of American TV and documentary here, but like I never I, I've heard I've seen some documentaries about, you know, you hear about the opioid, but your film is a really fresh take um, and uh, you have this in, incredible central character, the Brie, mm-hmm. or Brie, Brie exactly. Yeah, yeah, maybe tell me about kind of finding her and developing that relationship. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, it is. It is like they're forgotten about. That's absolutely true. Like, and they feel like that, you know. And that's why Brie wanted to talk about it because she felt forgotten about. Right. And and that's why everybody talked to me. Really, the whole community, uh, you know, or the people I did talk to, because they felt forgotten about. And I couldn't believe there was nobody else there asking the questions. Right. Like, where are all the reporters? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I did meet a reporter from The Guardian and who I became friends with. And he was down there doing um, a lot of really brilliant work. Chris McGreal is his name. He's done a lot of coverage on this topic. Um, but they did feel forgotten about. And I met Bree just online in a in a chat about addiction and um, then, you know, she was a felon out of prison and she was sending me all these, you know, she's, Brie likes to write, she's a very good writer and she was just sending me like message after message and she's like, you know, you have to tell this story and I did this and I did that and this happened to me. And then I was in southern West Virginia, I remember driving across the mountains and in January and it was like icy, it was like snowing and it was like, you know, the Appalachian Mountains are like really steep and windy and I was with my daughter who was tree. And it was nighttime and I was like going to meet Brie and I was like, I'm crazy. This girl must be nuts. She's just out of prison. I mean, (laughs) but then I meet her and she's like this lovely, sweet, wonderful, kind person. You know, I thought I was going to get robbed. You know, (laughs) I was like, I better hide my stuff while I meet Brie. But like, she's just this lovely, kind, beautiful person. You start writing the the news article in your head after (laughs) (laughs) filmmaker gets bugged or killed. Yes. (laughs) The naivety of me to even go there. But it was it was it was really weird because Brie is this hardened felon. But she's the she's really naive in a way herself. Mm. You know, even though she'd spent all this time in federal prison, she'd never been on a train. Right. Yeah. Like she'd never been to the beach, like things like this, you know, because you live in that part of the world and because, you know, the economic odds are against you, you know, and she was like living on the streets and, you know, like she just hadn't, you know, so it was a hardness to her in a way, but then this incredible naivety also. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. She's very, you know, just a very unusual kind of central character and totally engaging. It's kind of like. It's kind of confusing, you know, Mm -hmm. because she's just like very pretty and sweet and you're trying to kind of put it all together in your head. But there's just there seems to be a real goodness about her. Mm -hmm. Um, And was that something was that like, you know, 
trying to get your head around that, uh, you know, yeah. she is a former yeah. dealer and she had this crazy life. But, you know, mm. were, were you, were you, how did you manage that and kind of your own, like, mm. did you, I mean, we all have prejudices <laughs> and yeah. that kind of thing, you know? I know, I just, when I met her, like, I just thought that with the contrast was like, what you know, the stereotype was just completely turned upside down of like who this drug dealing, heroin dealing felon, like who was bringing heroin across borders, you know, at 19. And then you meet Brie and you're like, it's just so not what you expect. So I just found that really interesting, you know, so I just found the whole film, like everybody that you think is the bad person is not the bad person, <laughs> you know, and like... Yeah. And, you know, the, the and then the doctor who's like really responsible for all the addiction in that area, who's just yeah. like very educated doctor who, you know, people really trusted with their health care, was responsible for like getting everybody addicted in that whole part of West Virginia. You know, so everything is kind of just not what it seems. On its head, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, as a filmmaker, and a, how do you... You have to tread that line of, you know, responsible journalism and, you know, you don't want to get sued. I guess that's yeah. a big thing as well, mm. right? How did uh, you manage all that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did worry about that. Well, once I got the DEA into my film, right. I started to relax a little bit because it was like them saying everything that I wanted to say okay. yeah. <laughs> about what happened with the doctor. Like Brie and everybody else, I mean, they just became my friend and they didn't really care about anything. Yeah. Um, but with the doctor... You know, I was worried about what was I had to just set, use everything that was on the record. You know, mm -hmm. he had been arrested. There was like all of these charges brought against him. And when the DEA, when they were really eager to cooperate with me, actually, they were just really wonderful to work with because they really wanted the story because they had spent so long breaking that case, you know, so they really wanted to talk about it, too. So um, so then when when they got involved, then I, I realized I kind of relaxed a little bit because you know, you know, there was nothing he could challenge me on. And, and also it was the DEA's kind of saying it. So, you know, and, and everything is on record. You know, there was a lot of things that I couldn't use that I wanted to use. Actually, there was um, because that could be con considered defamation of character or something. Right. So, you know, I had to just go with what was, uh, you know, on paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what is the funding landscape like there for the for this kind of project in America is it very hard to get I know you went you mm -hmm. did go the crowdfunding route right yeah exactly I did go the crowdfunding route and I literally made it on nothing I just made it because I knew how to edit really there wouldn't be a, a film otherwise right um, so like things I didn't wait there is funding for people doing films like this you know um, but you're very uh, it's very difficult if you're saying anything against the grain. And because I was talking a little bit about the drug companies and their responsibility, that I did have people say, oh, I can't, sorry, I can't tell the story because our sponsors won't like it, you know. Okay. Um, so, like, um, and also there was with me, I didn't want to wait to tell the story because it was so immediate and it was happening right now and... You know, I, I felt like I needed to get this word out immediately. So I wasn't going to sit around writing grant proposals for a year. Yeah. Like that just wasn't going to happen. Like, yeah. you know, and and that's, you know, so I just needed to get on the road and do it right away. So I like literally had no money and I bought my camera was like 
less than a thousand dollars. I think it was nine hundred or nine hundred and fifty or something. It was like literally a, a Sony four K camcorder, <laughs> yeah, and a little plug in mic, you know. And I didn't know I was making a feature film, you know. I just knew that I had to document what was happening down here in this part of the world now because it was like it mattered to me and it mattered to a lot of people like you know and they needed to tell we needed to tell the story you know so um i just didn't wait i just hit the ground i mean so i didn't really i mean i applied for funding i didn't really get anywhere with it i mean i did get people responding to me and liking the idea and you know wanting to work on it and i'm sure if i had spent more time you know just doing a great proposal or put you know it could have worked that would, but I just didn't have the time, really. I felt like I wanted to work right now. And I and I knew that I could do it cheaply because, like, I had, you know, I was going to, I was a one-man band. You know, I didn't have a sound guy. I didn't have anybody, really. So I just hit the road and, and did it myself. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that thing, your your time is the cheapest is that if you have to get other people in. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, wow, that's incredible. And with a... a a very young daughter as mm-hmm. well in tow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On top of that, I had a three-year-old in the back of the car. Right. And we just we were driving around that part of America. Like, we would spend so long in the car between Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I mean, wow. it was staying in these motels and, like, dumps and, like, <laughs> it was, but it was just also, like... You know, there's the investigative angle where you're like, it's really interesting because you're finding out such information. And it was like, you know, and also it's like the Wild West down there. Like You can't right. believe the stuff that you hear. So there was an element of like adventure, you know, and um, and also people because they saw me. I'm a single mom. I have this small camera. I'm not a film crew and I have a daughter in the back of the car. So. People, you know, were never intimidated yeah. <laughs> by anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew they could trust me. They knew they could talk to me. And that helped them open up to me. So it ended up being advantageous, actually, to get those kind of stories. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah, you're definitely not a, a main, mainstream media. <laughs> definitely not a threat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, I'd say there's a lot of skepticism around those parts of, you know, yeah. Of media. Yeah, yeah, media yeah, and, and yeah. outsiders in general. Right. You know, yeah. uh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. It would have been very different. You have to kind of fly under the radar, yeah. you know, a little bit or blend in somehow, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. you get that feeling, you know, you're, it's almost, it's quite intimate watching the film. Like you're, you almost feel like you're sitting at the, the table with them. Oh, great. Saying, you definitely feel, yeah. feel that. Okay. Um, so, you had all these hours and are you editing as you're as you're going? Yeah, kind of editing as I'm going then. Yeah, I just, you know, I was just trying to back everything up. <laughs> and um, and I did. I mean, I was like eight trips to West Virginia, I think. Um, so each time I would try and just pull out the best clips or, you know, isolate some footage. And yeah, so I just did start to compile things. And um, I, it was hard to structure the story because it was so big you know and then you're trying to tell it through a true brie or through this you know so you're trying to tell a big story in a small way mm, you know yeah, yeah um and then so i just kind of to- told it like kind of the format of the film is kind of like in my process of finding out so i had to kind of start in the present and then kind of go back to how this how we got to be in this crazy emergency situation you know how this whole state is addicted to drugs how did that happen so you kind of have to go back in time and then you come back around to the present again. That was kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and to, like you were saying um, that there's, you know, there have been some changes. Like, how do you feel now? Like, is the culture changing? It does seem like that people are talking about it. I know my friend, he, he was saying in New York, like even getting surgery, like they're very, you know, they're much more careful about giving, uh, just handing out pain oh, yeah. pills. Like, uh-huh. you know, do you see a change in the next? Like, is it, are you hopeful? Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. They totally stopped. They won't, they won't, will not give you anything Yeah. for, you know, you can't get a pain pill in West Virginia anywhere now. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> Even I think this woman I know had a cesarean and they gave her Tylenol or something like, right. um, no, they stopped the pills and then the street drugs came in. Right. Um, so the pills have been stopped. But that didn't make anything better, you see. That right. just made the street drugs and the synthetic heroin and the synthetic fentanyl. So that more overdoses started happening. Because you, right. you can't just stop. Like, you know, some yeah. people have the idea that... Because people who are originally, like, say you're working... You know, there's a lot of mines down there in Appalachia. Yeah. So say you're yeah. working in a mine and you have an injury and you get prescribed, you know, take three of these a day for the next three months. And they're really strong painkillers. They're mm-hmm. like heroin in a pill, but it's a lot of heroin. Like it's three Oxycontins a day for like three months. I mean, you are totally an addict and there's no yeah. way you can just stop. But I think yeah. people were, they didn't know that at the time. Yeah. They were like, the doctor gave me this. I was prescribed this for my pain and they told me to take three of them a day, you know. Or, yeah. So they didn't realize you can't stop. Mm. So then, then when the doctor says, or the doctor gets taken down and gets sent to prison, <laughs> which happened a lot, yeah. or the doctor realizes that you know he's getting heat for prescribing, so he stops, or your insurance won't cover it anymore, so you stop. Um, so, but you can't just stop because mm. you're an addict now. You didn't realize it. It took you three or four months to realize, and you're desperate, and you will like literally the withdrawals are so you're so sick that you will do anything to not be sick. So, like, grandmothers were driving around West Virginia trying to buy pills off the street, and they would be $80 a pill. It was like it was 80 milligram Oxycontin would be $80. So, like, who has the money for that? So you'd see, like, 80-year-old women, like, driving around trying to find a dealer to get them some pills. So people just – and then you can't afford it because there's so much money because the doctor's being shut down. Mm. So there's no, the supply is not plentiful, so you can actually charge a lot more now. Mm. Um, so everybody just started buying heroin because it's literally the same thing. Yeah. So ladies were old ladies and men <laughs> were like buying heroin, you know, never in their lives would they imagine that they would become an intravenous drug mm. user. Mm. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. But there they were like in yeah. this c- terrible situation. Yeah. And, um, and that's what happened. So the, so there's I, there would have been hope, you know, because they stopped the drugs, mm. you know, but then there, you lose hope because then you see that all the heroin and fentanyl just came into all those towns mm. and took over. And, and you know, so because of last year's drug statistics, and now you can, you're can you probably seeing some of it on the news. I mean, people, mm. you know, it's hit Hollywood. You know, people are dying of fentanyl right. everywhere now. Right. Um, so I just don't understand how they can't stop the fentanyl from getting into the country. Apparently it's coming in from Mexico. It was originally coming from China, you know, I don't know. I really don't know how these... Brie knows more about it because she does have contacts in the, some of the cartels. So she just said they just keep... the. If it's who you know, you can pay your way and you get it across the border. Right. You know, and it's just flooded the country. Yeah. It's kind of like 
when you just think it can't get any worse when it was, you know, you had Oxycontin and heroin exactly. and then it's like yes. unimaginable that then this fentanyl. <laughs> fentanyl. <laughs> yeah. Which is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Yeah. Right. So just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it gets 50 to 100 times worse. <laughs> exactly. Right. And to, like, there's a lot of talk about um, that, you know, previous epidemics were very racialized and, you know, this mm-hmm. one doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. but you're saying it's still ignored even though you know it is in wider areas and it's like it's, it seems to be affecting everyone mm-hmm. um, I just can't fathom how it, it still seems to be like you know there's not an, enough films and yeah. not, inve- not enough going on what's yeah I know. I mean, I don't know either. Like, when are people going to wake up? Like, I mean, you had, was it Demi Lovato that overdosed last mm-hmm. year, a few years ago? And then recently some, you know, I mean, I just don't understand what it's going to take. Prince died of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, there is a lot more high profile cases now. But I guess the the market is so saturated. And, you know, it just takes a tiny amount of fentanyl. Mm. But then, like, I think that some people now are actively, when you build up a tolerance, like if you have a high tolerance, you know, some people do actually want the fentanyl to be cut into their drug supply because they've, uh, you know, they've built up a tolerance to maybe normal heroin or, mm. or whatever they're taking. Um, so maybe, you know... Maybe that prevents people from talking up because they're like, well, I did buy it. <laughs> you know, part of me is responsible for this. I mean, right. um, I don't know why there isn't more anger. I mean, there there is among mothers who have lost teenagers, you know, that's yeah. definitely a huge movement there. Absolutely massive. I'm part of these Facebook groups and every day I go online and it's like 15, 16, 17 year old children just like gone, just buying the wrong pill or like just. Mm-hmm. get tainted drug supply and then it's in cocaine which is obviously a very popular drug that you know so there's so much loss but so little being done about it um, seems a very American problem definitely right. it is like when I kind of first because I've been spending a lot of time in Ireland as I was telling you like half the time yeah. even more than half the time probably 2018 I was here a lot like most of the year um, so it's not as funny like that it has it is a very American problem I mean, America consumes is only 5% of the world's population but it does consume 80% of the world's opioids whoa even though yeah so but there is heroin use in Ireland I know like yeah. and there's a lot of cocaine use in Ireland and yeah. the UK and but the fentanyl hasn't made its way into the drug supply. Yeah. And I'm actually in touch with the DEA right now because I am trying to understand why is the fentanyl exclusively yeah. in the yeah. American drug supply and not in the European drug supply? I mean, I'm, I'm just terrified from from seeing your film and like, you know, because that's the thing. Like it, at the moment, it seems uniquely American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you ha- and I think partly maybe you wouldn't the things the way things were with the actual medical companies get away, getting away literally with murder mm-hmm. doesn't seem like that could happen but then would you be worried you know that they're so bloody powerful and uh, you know that it could like if it can happen there yeah surely it can happen anywhere yeah I know it is really terrifying I'm really worried about that like, right I mean and then with the fall of the Taliban some you know some people are claiming that People will start using synthetic synthetic opioids if the heroin, because I think most of the heroin into Europe is from Afghanistan. Mm. Um, 
so I mean, I don't know if it is coming up from Mexico, if it is coming in that way, um, the fentanyl now, how hard is it to get that to Europe? You know, I don't know. But yeah, it's definitely a concern because yeah. America d does kind of lead the way with stuff like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah. So once you got it finished, um, you got on the road and you started doing lots of screenings. So how was that then? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, like I kind of worked up, on, up uh, you know, I kept updating the film <laughs> until like very recently. Because right. things, the news, the, the drug company litigation kept changing and Purdue Pharma, which is one of the culpable parties responsible for starting this whole thing, um, they finally, you know, filed for bankruptcy and there was all these court proceedings. Um, so, I, so I kept kind of working, tapping away at it, you know, thinking it has to be better. It can, it can be better. It has to be better. It can be better. <laughs> and, um, and then I just, you know, yeah, I had some festivals and, and you know, people, it's great. people are really engaged and, in the topic. You know, people are really, it's great. People always stay for Q&As. I love that. They always ask, you know, it's great to talk and bring it around. I mean, I'd like to, but COVID then kind of shut a lot of that down that, you know, a lot of the screenings went virtual where you didn't have a chance to talk in a room, you know. So I'm really grateful to be able to do an in-person screening at the IFI and hopefully there'll be a Q&A afterwards and that'll be like lovely to be able to talk to people in a room, you know. Um, so it's really fun to, to bring it around and, and help educate people, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that the DEA actually, they use it in training their new agents, oh, so, wow. which is pretty cool. Yeah, That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... It's and and then there's some addiction courses where they have to. It's funny in West Virginia now. Um, I just made some friends with people. I was making the film and they work in addiction services, so they actually programmed this for their for their university courses that they have to watch overdosed before they get their certificate to work in recovery. Um, so so that's really something that Bree's really proud of because yeah. everyone recognizes her now. That yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, she's amazing. The film is so good. Uh, we'll be encouraging people to go see the screening. Um, and for anyone maybe not in Dublin, is there a way for them to see it? Yeah, you can watch it online, uh, the IFI player. So, Brilliant. yeah, you can watch it online too. And there's a chat, me and Brie and um, did a chat afterwards uh, with Donal O'Kelleher, who's another filmmaker from Ireland. So he hosted a little chat with me and Brie that will be following the virtual screening. So if you buy a ticket for the virtual screening, you can see that chat. It's kind of fun to see Brie. You can see where she's at today. She's doing good. <laughs> great. Yeah. That's amazing. Great, yeah. great to hear that. Um, we always kind of ask a question. Um, if you could talk to yourself, the person who was starting out on the this journey with the film, what advice would you give them or what lesson oh <laughs> would God. you wish you learned okay. sooner? One word, de-interlace. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my footage was interlaced. I mean, you know, I wasn't, the, I'm not the most, I mean, I'm not a DP, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But like, so I wasn't really paying too much attention to my camera settings. <laughs> So most of my footage is progressive, but some of it is interlaced. And that just <laughs> killed me. Really, yeah. Like, I've spent, like, so much time trying to de-interlace footage and, like, get things to work together in a, in a, in a sequence that's mixed format. This makes sense to some people out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that is definitely something that would be look at your camera settings and make sure your footage is all in the same format. Yeah. And... Um, 
Uh, yeah, so that's the biggest technical thing. Um, you know, I mean, I so I didn't have, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, and also with documentaries, you don't know where the story's going. Mm. So it's really hard to know where the finish line is or what the arc of the story is. You know, I wish I had known that earlier on, but honestly, there is no way to really know that when you're doing a film like this, I think. So, yeah. but I suppose that that was the most challenging thing for me, like trying to create the narrative in the editing room, you know, how to tell the story, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and when you're on your own as well, especially with the technical things, I mean, oh, yeah. yes. And yeah. you're on your own, you can't be objective. You're right. just lost. Like, you've got no idea if that makes sense or not right. to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. That was really challenging. Like, I would have to, like, get people to screen it. And I was, like, asking all my friends, hey, can you watch this? Like, and, you know, then you're relying on their feedback. And it was so nice of them to take the time to do it and then give you the feedback. But that really helped all the people that did agree to, you know, watch it for me. Um, because I really just um, I'm the filmmaker and I've done everything and it's and it's personal to me and I just can't be objective and I just it was a real struggle you know you do need somebody in, with you in the edit room I think you yeah, know? yeah yeah um, well amazing to hear I didn't realize that it was <laughs> you and your daughter out on the road uh, incredible incredible sorry I'm, I'm inspired oh um, thank you so. yeah and anybody can do it if you have a thousand dollars you can buy a camera even less. Shoot it on your iPhone. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, well, best of luck with everything and uh, please keep in touch. Let us know if you've, when your next film is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're, we will. You're back in town. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you so much.